Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their house, houses, and their righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have freely scattered their gift to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horns will be lifted high in honour. The wicked will see and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and waste away. The longing of the wicked will come to nothing. The second passage is Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 to 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsions, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all time, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gift to the poor. Their righteousness endure forever. Now, who, now he who supplies seeds to the sower and bread for the food will also supply increase your store of seeds and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the lost people, but is also overflowing many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confessions of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayer for you, their hearts will go out, with, go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm and for your word. Thank you that these are words of life. Words that you've given us to speak and sing back to you about who you are and who we are as your people. 
Help us to see these things more clearly and to walk more closely with Jesus as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is Christianity good for you? That is a a question people are increasingly asking in in our world today. Um, The question used to be, is it true? Uh, Then after that, uh, it was, does it really make a difference? But now it is really, is it good for you? And behind that is that that suspicion that, you know, whatever claims Christianity makes about God and Jesus Christ, and maybe actually it does more harm than good. And so in the 21st century, we can just safely ignore it. And maybe even for Christians, sometimes there can be this kind of nagging doubt that, you know, okay, we're convinced that it's true, and we're therefore persuaded that it's good for us. But it feels good for us in the same way as a kind of, I don't know, cabbage and kale smoothie, or 200 press ups, or cleaning the bathroom or whatever it might be. You know, it's, it's right, it's good for you, but going God's way and not your own way really isn't fun. Well, the psalmist today in, in, in Psalm 112 isn't having any of that, okay? Praise the Lord, he says. This is another praise the Lord, as we, as we heard, a, a hallelujah psalm. Psalm, uh, both these psalms so far, Psalm 111 and 112, follow the great Psalm 110. If you were here two weeks ago, we heard that preached for us by by David. And uh, the the other David, the the David in the Bible, great King David, speaks in Psalm 110 of an even greater king and an even greater Lord than him. And King David anticipates that greater king's coronation and the day that that greater king to come will execute judgment over all God's enemies and everything will be okay. And Christians know that that Psalm 110, as it looked forward, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, dying and rising from the dead. The things that were seen in the future have now come to pass and begun to come to pass in a way that we know their fulfillment will be certain. So the Psalms look forward. We today, in one sense, look back because we're the other side of Jesus. But even then, the Psalms were saying, this great thing that's going to happen, here is how to respond. And so in the way that the Psalms have been compiled, sometimes we read through the Psalms and we think, oh, it's just, you know, it's just like a sort of hymn book. You know, that uh, one hymn follows another and it's not particularly connected. But actually, no, sometimes when you look closely, you find they've been compiled very carefully. There's a reason why the Psalms come in the order that they do. And so following that great climax of Psalm 110 comes these Psalms, and it actually carries on all the way up to uh, Psalm uh, 117. Praise the Lord each time. We've got so much to praise God for in the light of who he is and what he's done. And last time, Psalm 111, we saw praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done. His great works in creation. Creating the world in all its beauty and dazzling splendor like we saw in the BBC video. And then praise him for his great works in salvation. Saving his people who deserve nothing and get everything. 
Praise the Lord. But now, Psalm 112, the psalmist continues. Praise the Lord once again, and now we're going to see what a life of praise looks like. What does a life, as a member of God's people, what does a life of praise look like? Is it cabbage and kale, 200 press-ups, cleaning the bathroom kind of life? Well, look at what he says. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Now, at first glance, blessed and fear and delight aren't three words that you'd expect to find together. Okay, blessed and delight, that's all good. Fear the Lord, no, that's cabbage and kale again. Well, how can these go together? Is going God's way, is fearing the Lord, is it good for you? Is it a life of blessing and delight? Well, those three words, blessed, fear, and delight, in verse 1, are the three words that we're going to use to unlock the rest of the psalm. As the psalmist makes his case for that bold statement in verse 1, the rest of the psalm unpacks it, and we say, okay, this is why that extraordinary verse 1 is true. And he gives us three perspectives on a life of praise, living God's way, that are summed up by those words. Another word for living God's way is godliness. Godly. What does the word godly mean? Well, it means being like God. That's what it means, isn't it? And through the psalm, we see the psalmist describe what a life of godliness looks like. So you can see, if you follow on the, on the back of the handouts, a life of godliness is, first of all, a life of blessing, verses 2 to 5. So do you see this life of blessing, verses 2 to 5? Do you see the different ways the psalmist describes blessing in these verses? So can you see children mighty in the land, the generation of the upright blessed, wealth and riches. Verse 5, good will come. Now we have to do a bit of digging here to understand what's going on. It's quite hard to see this in our English translations, but Psalm 112 is closely related to Psalm 111 that we saw last time. And the thing, if you were reading this in the original language, which is Hebrew, if you were reading this, the thing that would stand out to you as you read these two psalms, and as you perhaps read them in, uh, or sing them um, in the original language, is that they're both acrostic poems. Okay? Now, do you know what an acrostic is? It's where each line of the poem begins with the next letter of the alphabet. And in, in this case, it's each half line of our English verses, roughly, roughly speaking. Each time you get to about halfway through a verse or, or the end of a verse, you get the next letter of the alphabet beginning the next little thing that, that is said in the original. Now, that isn't just a sort of clever observation for people who understand Hebrew. It's important to see because it makes us read the two psalms alongside each other. Because not all the psalms are like this. So, so when you see two that do this, you think, oh, okay, there's something sort of structurally the same about them. It makes us want to read them together. And then you start to notice the similarities between the individual verses that begin with the same letter. And actually, you can see these fairly easily in English. So we can see. So let's look back. And it's really lovely in our Bibles. We've got Psalm 111, Psalm 112, two columns on the same page. So look with me on page 614. Bit of digging here. So 
verse 2, look back at Psalm 111. Uh, Psalm 111, verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. And then jump across verse 2 of Psalm 112. Mighty, which is a similar word to great, are the children of the upright. So you've got a kind of parallel description of two different things. Verse 3, so, so yeah, with Psalm 111 being about God and Psalm 112 then being about the righteous their children. Okay, verse 3, Psalm 111, splendor and majesty, glorious and majestic, if you look uh, in, in our translations, glorious and majestic. And then in, in chapter, in, in Psalm 112, jump across wealth and riches. And then second half of those verses, even more obvious, what does it say? In, in Psalm 111, his righteousness endures forever. Psalm 112, their righteousness endures forever. Psalm 111, verse 4, left-hand side, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Right-hand side, Psalm 112, verse 4, the upright are gracious and compassionate and righteous. So what is the meaning of all this? Well, can you see, in, 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 in Psalm 111, we saw last time, the focus is on God, it's on what God is like. He's amazing. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's created. Look at how he's saved us. Focus on God. And then Psalm 112, the focus is on what God's people are like. The people who are living lives of praise of this amazing God of Psalm 111. And the key thing to note, and this is the take-home point, if you're not completely following the details, this is the thing to see. The way the two Psalms are placed alongside each other with their similar structures, designed to tell you God's people are meant to be like God. Do you see? God's people are meant to be like God. That is what they're like. His righteousness endures forever. Their righteousness endures forever and so on. God's people are meant to be like God, to be godly. And what the psalmist is doing is saying, those who are godly are blessed. Which speaks right into that question we started with of whether Christianity is good for you. Now, maybe we still read this and we think, really? I mean, blessed? Is this really true? Does this really happen? I mean, wealth and riches? I mean, well, you know, sometimes, but really? Is that a promise for, for everybody? What about when God's people don't flourish and succeed? What about people like Job in the Bible and others that we know in our own experience? Is this always true? Well, this kind of psalm is part of what's often called wisdom literature in the Bible. And it's a poetic way of describing what is usually the case. Not necessarily in a universal, every single case kind of way, but how things generally go. And the book of Proverbs does something similar. So if you go God's way, things generally go well for you. Now, you have to define what you mean by going well. And one of the things the book of Proverbs does is makes you realize life going well for you is not perhaps what somebody, a secular person living in North London in the 21st century would think life going well for you is. But nevertheless, a life lived going God's way will mean life is good. Life is as it's meant to be lived. Now, books like Job and Ecclesiastes, also in that kind of wisdom 
genre of literature, if you like. Well, they make it clear that this isn't a universal promise for all circumstances. But this, and, and even the psalmist here, if you look, he knows. He's saying wealth and riches are in their houses and their righteousness endures forever. But then, verse 4, what does he do immediately? He talks about darkness. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. Darkness still comes. This, isn't a, this, this life lived going God's way and being a blessing isn't a life free of darkness. But there's something about what happens when you're in the darkness that is distinctive about the person living a life of praise in relationship with God. Now, I was, I was reflecting on this, and I, you know, I can testify to this just a little bit from my own recent experience in hospital. So, you know, some people know I had a hip operation which basically went okay, but I ended up in hospital longer than expected because I had an infection. So back at the beginning of July. And at times, there were parts of that that were pretty tough. Now, I should be clear, I was getting world-class medical care from the, the doctors, but um, I don't have any complaints about that whatsoever. But you will probably know from your own experience, if you, if you spent any time in a hospital, hospitals can be a pretty miserable place. Can be, sometimes. And I was on an, an acute medical ward surrounded by brokenness. And so, you know, you've got people around you and you've got com a completely random collection of people because that's how it works. You get brought into hospital and you're just with whoever's there. And people um, confused, completely confused about what is going on why they're there, in pain, shouting out, uh, in, in some cases all day and all night, crying out, and nobody seems to be able to, to help them kind of make sense of what is going on for them, dealing with serious, intractable medical problems, getting angry and frustrated, and, and you're in the middle of this, and I'm sure others will have had exactly this kind of experience before, of kind of dealing with being unwell, Wondering, you know, where's this going? Where, you know, what's going to happen? And that, that, that feels like a kind of darkness. And yet in the darkness, there was extraordinary light. Now, one of the things, there was this weird thing where I could put my headphones on. I don't know if you've done this. You know, you're in the midst of something you don't like. Put your headphones on. You can play amazing music. And this was a really sort of Psalm 111 kind of thing. You know, just... God's creation, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly Christian music, actually. It was just music that is part of the wonderful uh, things that God has created. But it's, it's just extraordinarily beautiful, and you've got this weird contrast between amazingly beautiful music and then utter brokenness in the darkness around you. And that, that was one thing that was, that was extraordinary. But then, obviously, beyond that... That's experience of listening to and reading God's word. And you're pretty weak when you're in a hospital. It's not like you can have amazing, in-depth, quiet times in, in, on a ward. But just little things, little verses being reminded of who God is and what he's done. And being reminded that actually these are things that no one can take away from you. Nothing can remove from you. No one can take Jesus Christ away from you. 
It's said that maybe you only really believe that Jesus is all you need when Jesus is all you have. And sometimes it's only actually in the darkness that you really get what it means to be blessed in the way that Christians are through trusting in Jesus. See, the world around us only has here and now and only has health and wealth. And when that goes, well, all is lost. There's nothing more. But the Christian has something that no illness and no plague, no relationship breakdown, no economic downturn, no cost of living crisis, none of these things can destroy, which is Jesus himself. So as we read this today as Christian people, we can see and believe what the psalmist is saying on an even deeper level. Do you see? In Christ, we are rich. Whatever happens, whatever the future holds, that is a life of true blessing lived, trusting in him, living for him, walking with him, knowing that not even death itself can separate us from him. The future is bright. A life of blessing. But there's more. So, the psalmist continues, a life of no fear. I'll explain. Do you notice there's brackets there? It's a bit weird, isn't it, when we're talking. You can't really do brackets in a, verbally, but a life of no, in brackets, fear. I'll explain what that means in a minute. The word fear comes three times in this psalm. Can you see? So we've got it in verse 1. Blessed are those who fear the Lord. Verse 7, they will have no fear of bad news. Again in verse 8. And there is language in verses 6 to 8 also of not being shaken, steadfastness, security. So can you see here, there is both, at the same time, there is both fear and no fear. You see? No fear in the things we're often most afraid of. That's what he says, bad news. The things that wake us at 3 a.m., the things we think, well, if that unthinkable thing happened, or if I lost that person, or whatever it is, I think life would be unlivable. And I try not to think about it, because if I do think about it, it totally paralyzes me. I don't know if that sort of thing feels in any way familiar. The psalmist is saying... A life of godliness is a life where you don't need to have that kind of fear because, can you see, it's been replaced by fearing the Lord. Now, we began to think about this a little bit last time because, it, because the fear of the Lord comes at the end of Psalm 111. And, and John, who was preaching last time, gave us the classic quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, about Aslan the Lion. Aslan is the Jesus figure in the story and Lucy is scared to hear that Aslan is not a man because she'd been assuming this character they kept talking about was a man and then she's told he's a lion and she's thinking, oh my goodness, that's, that, that sounds terrifying. You know, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver, who she's talking to, says, well, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he is good. And that is a, a helpful image because it helps us see something of what this concept of fearing God is about. It's a much repeated phrase and, and concept in the Bible. It comes up again and again and again, particularly in the Old Testament. And the point is, you see, lions are fearsome creatures. You know, if you end up in a cage at London Zoo, I hope this doesn't happen to you next time you're visiting, but if you're, if you, if you're on the wrong side of those railings and you're in the cage with the lion... That is a pretty scary place to be. You don't want to be there. 
Anything can happen. What's going to happen? The lion might be fine. Sometimes you see them, they're all cute and they're rolling over like little kittens. Other times they eat you. So it just depends what kind of mood they're in, doesn't it? You don't want to mess with them. But here is, here is this lion-type person who is absolutely a lion, but he's good. And so your fear of him is not a fear that somehow he's just going to destroy you on a whim just because he's a bit hungry this morning and he feels like it. No, that sort of fear has been removed because he's a good lion, loving lion. But there is a kind of fear that still remains, do you see? Which is, no, but he, he's still a lion. He's still awesome. He's still the strongest creature. He's still somebody you absolutely don't mess with. And that just gives us something of what it means to fear God. Not that we must be afraid that he might do something randomly unpleasant, like all the other things we fear in the world. That's what we fear, isn't it? Something randomly unpleasant is going to happen, and it, you know, it's completely unpredictable, and it's terrifying. No, it's not that kind of fear. But it's saying, no, he is awesome. He is strong. He is majestic. He is good. How can we not bow down before him in our hearts and our lives and give our whole lives to him? That is fearing the Lord. And the striking thing is that it's only that kind of fear of the Lord which deals with all those other fears which wake us up at 3 a.m. and easily dominate our hearts and our lives. It's realizing, actually, our lives are in his hands. Well, of course they are. He's God, and he made us, and he knows us, and he loves us because he sent Jesus to die for us, and and Jesus rose from the dead. So... We can trust him. We can put ourselves in his hands. Say, I don't know the future, Lord. I don't know where this is going. I don't know if it's going to involve more darkness and more pain along the way. Well, it it probably will. But you are good and I can trust you. And I'm just going to put myself in your hands. And therefore, all those other things that wake me up and and consume me, well, they, they they, they, they can't have the same hold over me because I fear you and I'm in your hands. He's the God where in the darkness light dawns, do you see? Some of us might remember Jeremy Marshall. Um, During COVID, three years ago, we did an interview with him on YouTube. We had this little series of interviews which we called COVID Conversations when we were all sitting at home with nothing to do and we thought we'd interview some people. And uh, one of them was Jeremy Marshall. Um, And the, the interview was called Beyond the Big Sea. And he talked about what it was like to live with incurable cancer, which is what he was doing for about the last uh, uh, 10 years, at least. And uh, last week, after living far longer than the the doctors initially anticipated, he went to be with the Lord. And uh, he, he is one of those genuinely unusual people who touch the lives of thousands and thousands of people with his testimony of his faith in Jesus in the face of death. And I'd really commend to you if, you, if you've not seen that video or you've forgotten it, go back and look at it on our, on our YouTube channel. He, he's written a book, too, called Beyond the Big Sea. But, okay, here is somebody, Jeremy Marshall, who knew about darkness. He knew about bad news. That's the phrase here, isn't it? Verse 7. He knew about bad news. He was, a, he was actually he was a very successful banker. If you know his story, he was the CEO of the oldest private bank 
in, in the UK when he was given his terminal diagnosis in his, in his mid-50s. And I remember, I remember as part of his story, he talked about, first of all, when he, was delivered, when he was given this bad news, the nurse that was with him, she started crying as, as they shared this news with him. And then he started crying. It, it, it's not that he was immune from the sadness of the situation of dying young with his family and all of that being separated. But at the same time, he had unshakable faith in Christ that not even the worst of bad news could overcome. Do you see? They will have no fear of bad news, verse 7. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. There's an old hymn that finishes like this, or something like this. It says, fear him, you saints, i.e. fear God, and then you will have nothing else to fear. A life of no fear. Well, that's the second thing. Then thirdly, finally, a life of delight in God's commands. So this is picking up on that language in verse 1 again. Uh, People who find great delight in his commands. But then seeing that spelt out in what is described in verse 9. And he returns to the psalmist to this theme of giving generously that marks out the godly. It was there as well uh, back in um, in verse 5. And and giving generously. But note this word that that stands out in verse 9. The word freely. There are, see, there are two types of generous giver. There, there are first, those who give what, what many might sort of think is generous, you know, objectively sort of generous sums of money or whatever it is, or time or energy. But they give generously through gritted teeth. So maybe they feel guilty about something. Maybe they feel obliged by peer pressure or needing to keep up appearances. Maybe they think, if, if I give this much, God will leave me alone. I can get on with my life my way. Uh, maybe they think, if I give this much, it will bring me power. It will buy me a, a right to speak into the situation, whatever it is. And to onlookers, it might look very generous, very noble, very Christian. But it's not the kind of generous giving the psalmist talks about here. The resu- this giving is freely given. Not out of guilt, not to please people or keep up appearances, not to twist God's arm, not to try and wield power and control, but freely. And, and we heard this explored more in the second reading from 2 Corinthians. That's why we read that. Those little, uh, where, where Paul in that section of, of that letter to the Corinthians is talking about what Christian giving is about. And he says, God loves a cheerful giver. And he actually quotes from this psalm. He quotes this verse 9 uh, in 2 Corinthians. And you can go and look, look back at that later. But he, uh, he quotes that. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. See, Christian giving is in response to the way that we have been loved by God freely, generously, so generously. How can we do anything other than give? And it's not just about money, is it? It's about giving of, of all our resources, our time, our energy, the things that in one sense cost us, but it's no cost when we reflect on how much we have been loved by God. 
that the, the world around us, you see, doesn't get free generosity. It doesn't really make any sense. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you saw this, was a great outcry over the story of a group of mountaineers ascending K2. And in their determination to reach the summit, reportedly, one by one, they climbed over a dying porter who had fallen and been fatally injured, just quite close to the summit. And at least one climber in, in doing that was about to break the world record for scaling the, the world's highest 14 peaks. And there was a great outcry about this when it, as it became known that this had happened. You know, where is, where is the compassion? Where is the mercy for someone? Where is the humanity? So yes, it, it seems there probably was little that could be done for this poor, poor man who had fallen at that point. Uh, he, he, he was beyond being, being saved, but he was alive and he was dying. Did he need to die there alone in, in those circumstances? Could he not have been brought down somewhere where he could have been made more comfortable? Those are the kinds of things people were saying. See, people, people instinctively feel it, it can't be right to put scaling a mountain above caring for a dying man. But the thing is, you see, when you start to think about it, our, world, our wider world's kind of naturalistic, atheistic worldview really has no good reason to say why someone should freely inconvenience themselves when they've come so far and they're so close to kind of achieving their absolute dreams that they've been dreaming of for so long. Why, you know, why do they need to give that up just to, to care for someone? It doesn't really make any difference. This poor guy's going to die anyway. You know, why show love and compassion to a stranger whose life can't be saved? See, do you see that, that our, our atheistic kind of wider world view doesn't really have a reason for that? Although people still kind of know that doesn't quite feel right. They don't quite know how to express that. But the Christian has a saviour who freely, willingly, joyfully gave himself up for those who don't deserve it. Who loved us with undeserved compassion and mercy and love. And that is what can turn reluctant givers of time and money and energy into generous givers who give of all those things with joy and delight. See, this is so different, isn't it, from the picture people so often have of the Christian life. Grudging devotion, cabbage and kale, smoothie or whatever it is. This is where it's not a grudge, it's a delight to obey God's commands. It's not that we have to serve God, although that's true. It's that we, we get to serve him, as we so often say. This, that is the life of godliness, privilege, joy, delight. And that is what we're invited to as, as God's people. If you're here and you, and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus and, and started following him, you're, you're investigating, that is what you're invited to. Just see this life that, you, that is laid out here. Not easy, there's still darkness in a broken and fallen world. But a life that is transformed as we know and walk with Jesus Christ. All of us are invited to that and to find the life of serving God to be not a burden and something terrible, but a privilege and a joy and a delight. But don't miss the sting in the tail 
as we close. There's a little PS there on the, on the handout. Verse 10. The wicked will see and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. Now, this might seem a little bit odd to kind of tack that on the end, but uh, this is like the, the ending of the first psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. And like this psalm, that psalm begins, blessed is the man, or, or blessed are those in this translation. So it begins in exactly the same way, and it spends most of that Psalm 1 describing how life lived, trusting God, is a good life, a life worth having, like a tree planted by streams of water, if you go back and look at it later. But it, again, it ends with a warning like this one, the way of the wicked will perish. And so here, we've had a lot of carrot, if you like, more carrot than stick, you might say, in, in, in this Psalm. Look how good it is to follow Jesus. Look how good it is to go his way. But don't miss the flip sides. It's not just take it or leave it. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. No, the flip side is wasting away. Their longings come to nothing. There is no, it's true, there is amazing life in Jesus Christ and in following him and in going his way. But the point is, the psalm is just keen for us to say, life outside of Jesus Christ, there is no life at all. That's how amazing and important and urgent as well it is to come and put our trust in Jesus and go his way. Not to do that is really serious. So, Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Is Christianity good for you? A life of praising God, of fearing the Lord is not cabbage and kale, but blessing and delight. Let's pray now. So we thank you, Father, for these words and for helping us to see what a life of praise, a life of living in relationship with you looks like. And so might that ref uh, transform us as we live trusting in you this week. Bring us to trust you even for the first time. Help us to see how good it is to go your way so that even in darkness, light dawns so that we have no fear of bad news because we fear you. And so we live lives of generous giving of ourselves in, in whatever ways that looks like. delighting in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.